Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's November 1st. The Sistine Chapel ceiling opened to public viewing for the first time on this day in 1512. The Sistine Chapel is in Vatican City and it was operating as a chapel. It was a real place that people went to worship. People still go there all the time. So what was really happening wasn't so much that they were opening up the ceiling for public view. It's that the congregation arrived for mass that day, which was All Saints Day. The chapel had originally been built back in 1475 for Pope Sixtus IV, and that's also who it's named for. Originally, from the very beginning, the walls of the chapel were adorned with all of these very elaborate frescoes, but the ceiling at first was really simple. It was more like just a field with some dots on it that represented the night sky. Then in 1504, a crack formed in the ceiling. And once that crack was repaired and the ceiling was reinforced, they needed to do something about that original painting of the kind of starry field because now it was damaged. So Michelangelo was tasked with painting a new ceiling, and he signed a contract to do it on May 8th of 1508. He didn't really want to do this job, though. He really thought of himself as a sculptor, not as a painter. And he also had no experience whatsoever in something of this kind of scale when it came to painting. Even so, though, this whole plan of painting the Twelve Apostles turned into something much bigger. It originally was Twelve Apostles surrounded by maybe some ornamental motifs. And then that became... Nine stories from the book of Genesis down the middle of the ceiling. They call those the central stories. They're divided into three sections, which are the creation of the universe, and then Adam and Eve and their downfall, and then some stories about Noah. And then in the corners, there are these architectural elements that are curved triangles called penditives. And these were four stories about people of Israel, one of them being Judith and Holofernes. Then along the edges, there are some more triangular architectural features. These are spandrels, and they contain depictions of the ancestors of Jesus. There are more ancestors of Jesus and moon-shaped features that are called lunettes as well. And then in between those spandrels and the central stories from the book of Genesis are the 12 sibyls and prophets. There is a lot going on in the ceiling The thing is huge, and it took four years to complete. It's also extremely high up. If you go into the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling is much, much higher above you than just you might typically think of. So all of this work had to be done on scaffolds. Even though people imagine that Michelangelo did this lying down, he really did it standing up with his head craned back. It was very uncomfortable and took a physical toll on him. Work on this took so long that his style evolved over time. He took a break from it in 1510, and the frescoes from after 1510 are noticeably different than the ones before. They're a lot more minimalist, The creation of Adam is from after 1510, and that's the part of the ceiling that people usually think of when they think about the ceiling. So four years sounds like an incredibly long time to work on one piece of art, but this ceiling is really enormous, and he was working incredibly quickly to finish it in four years. 
He used the technique that involved laying down fresh plaster and then transferring a sketch of the work that he was going to create onto the plaster before filling it in. He also had assistants working with him. But even with this efficient process that he worked out and assistants who were helping, he was doing incredibly grueling physical work. He permanently damaged his eyesight working on this, and he kept arguing with the Pope, who kept pushing him to finish it more quickly than he was. He was so miserable by the end of all of this that he wrote a poem about how unhappy he was. And he also reportedly added a couple of sad-looking self-portraits into a couple of the frescoes. Later on, he also painted the Last Judgment on the wall behind the altar of the Sistine Chapel. And then today, now that this painting has been here for hundreds of years, more than five million people come to see it every year. Tari Harrison has moved on to other projects, but I'd like to thank her again for all of her work on the first four months of this show. And I'd like to welcome aboard Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays, who will be doing the audio work. Thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat as well for her research on today's episode. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. You can tune in tomorrow for the birth of one of history's more infamous women. Hello again, it's Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History Class, a podcast that truly believes no day is boring. The day was November 1st, 1879. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School opened in Pennsylvania. In 1819, U.S. Congress passed the Civilization Fund Act, which allocated funds to schools designed to civilize Native American children by removing them from their reservations and assimilating them into European American culture. Beginning in the late 18th century, the U.S. had embarked on a mission of Americanizing indigenous peoples by stripping them of their customs and culture and teaching them U.S. customs and values. The government banned Native Americans from conducting their traditional religious ceremonies and allotted them land in exchange for U.S. citizenship. And missionaries formed schools that taught Native Americans Christianity, citizenship, and English. This way, white Americans believed indigenous folks would be acculturated to the U.S., and they would become peaceful adults who contributed to the U.S. economy. Some Native Americans resisted this forced assimilation, while others accepted it. There were white Americans who opposed the policies of assimilation, but many white Americans believed these civilizing efforts were a benevolent cause and that they were saving Native Americans from their supposed savagery and rapid decline. Education was one of the main ways the U.S. attempted to assimilate Native Americans. The Bureau of Indian Affairs, formed in 1824, called for the education of Native Americans in separate boarding schools. Civil War veteran Lieutenant Colonel Richard Henry Pratt established the first off-reservation boarding school funded by the federal government. Abandoned Army barracks in Pennsylvania became a school building. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School opened on November 1, 1879. Pratt's philosophy was that, quote, all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. The school's motto was kill the Indian, save the man. Students' names were changed to English ones, and they were forbidden from using their indigenous ones. They were given new clothes and haircuts. The children were trained in trades and domestic activities. 
They lived with local non-Native American families over the summer, rather than returned to their families and worked on farms or in stores. The school exposed children to infection, disease, and harsh conditions, and hundreds of children died while there. 186 are buried on site. Carlisle became a model for other government-funded schools for forced assimilation. The government required them to attend and made it legal for officers to take children from their homes. Parents who resisted had to run, hide, or face imprisonment. The government still believed it was saving children from poverty and a wayward life. Since Native American children were not allowed to attend public schools with white students, boarding schools were often the only option for their formal education. But at the schools, students were given little academic instruction. They were mainly given vocational training that prepared them to be farmers or manual laborers. And the children were often subject to physical and sexual abuse. Pratt retired as Carlisle's superintendent in 1904, after butting heads with the Bureau of Indian Affairs over his views on reservations and assimilation. The school closed in 1918, as it had become less relevant over the years and was needed as a military installation. The Miriam Report, published in 1928, criticized conditions on reservations and in Native American boarding schools. It supported the assimilation of Native American children, but opposed isolating them in separate schools. But attendance at these schools increased, despite the protest of Native American activists and the efforts of people like Commissioner of Indian Affairs John Collier, who worked to reverse policies of Native American cultural assimilation. Attendance at Native American boarding schools peaked in the 1970s, with an estimated 60,000 students enrolled in 1973. Most Native American boarding schools have since closed. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can keep up with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. And you can email us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you here again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.